Good morning. It's a joy to be back at Heaven Hope to share the Word of God with you. I would like to thank my brother for the, the prayer for this moment of study as well. Last time I was here in July, we considered Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and the topic of courage in Christ. And today I want to invite you to open the scriptures to Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. I'll give you uh, the time to open the scriptures. You know, many of you don't even know me. Why should you trust me? But you can trust the word of God. Uh, my words are tentative, but the words of God are authoritative. My words are fallible, but the scriptures are infallible. So please, please, let's make it clear where the authority lies. And it is not in me, but in the Word of God. So Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. And today I'm reading from the New King James Version. Matthew 13. I'm just uh, listening to the pages. I want to give you a little bit more time. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. And the text says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it merchants buy and sell and this one was looking for pearls how much do you think a pearl would be worth you know it's interesting that jesus does not specify a price but it says that it was a pearl of great price, great value. How much do you think a pearl would be worth in the ancient world? In the IVP Bible commentary, the New Testament scholar Craig S. Keener points out that some pearls imported by the rich could be worth the equivalent of millions of dollars. Imagine, one pearl, millions of dollars. And this is back in the ancient world, equivalent to today's money, millions of dollars. That's a lot. But like I said, Jesus does not specify a price. And Jesus was able to, 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 to use numbers, to use values. I mean, you have the parable that you have the, the 10,000 talents, for example. Why did he not specify a price here? Well, I don't know for sure, but maybe. Maybe it was to emphasize that this pearl was worth it all. It was worth selling all that one had to buy it. This merchant saw that this was indeed a valuable pearl. He saw that this was a valuable pearl, and he then lets go of everything he has and buys this one pearl. Everything now hinges on this one pearl. Everything he has now is this one pearl. But as a good and perceptive merchant, he also knows that in fact this pearl is worth more than what he paid for. Because as I said, merchants buy and sell. So he knows that with the sale of this pearl, he'll get to have even more than he had before. 
So we could even come to the conclusion that this pearl is worth more than everything he had combined. More than everything he had combined. What is the kingdom lesson that we can take from this parable? I think it might be helpful to consider first a few differences. At least two differences I want to point out. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he describes the situation. But there are differences between the kingdom of heaven and what we see here. One of them is in what I pointed out. Merchants buy and sell. They buy something, they have it temporarily, and then they sell it and have it no more. But we do not embrace the kingdom of heaven to have it temporarily, but permanently. That's our goal. And also, we do not buy the kingdom of heaven with money. So these are at least two key differences to keep in mind. But with these differences in mind, we can say, based on this parable, that the kingdom of heaven is worth it all. Its value outweighs the value of any and everything that you have combined. The kingdom of heaven is worth whatever the cost. We may now then ask, but what is really, specifically, the value of the kingdom of heaven? This parable is suggesting that it is worth it all. It is worth letting go of everything you have if you need to so you can have it. But what is really its value? And what is the cost? And then third, is it worth it? Well, let's try to do a little value assessment here. Think about the kingdom of heaven. Let's think about New Jerusalem. Dwellings of gold, infinite, healthy, longevity, total safety, amazing food. It sounds like a great package. But what about the cost? What is the cost of this kingdom? Now, right here, when we speak about the cost of the kingdom, some people may get a little nervous. Are we not saved by grace? Well, of course. I mean, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, to make it clear, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, tell us how we are saved by grace, how salvation is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yes, salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace. Still, this parable speaks of an exchange. There's a cost involved for this man to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. How can we then speak of a cost of the kingdom of heaven if we are saved by grace? Well, Jesus himself points out at least some elements, some aspects of the cost of the kingdom. Consider, for example, John, John chapter 15. John 15, in verses 18 to 21. John, the fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 15, and verses 18 to 21. John 15, 18 to 21. And see 
what Jesus says here and consider what he can tell you about the cost of the kingdom of heaven. John 15, 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Part of the cost of the kingdom of heaven is the cost of following Jesus. Part of the cost of following Jesus is being willing to suffer persecution, being willing to be the object of the world's hatred. We can go back to Matthew now, and we were in, uh, considering the parable in chapter 13, but let's go to chapter 10. and Look at verses 37 to 39. It will help us to learn a little bit more about the cost of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. And, and, and this will help us really explore the question of whether it is with it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. And look at what Jesus says. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The cost of following Jesus, the cost of the kingdom of heaven, involves, in summary, having Jesus as truly the number one in your life. Above parents, above children, above friends, above your peer group in school or in your workspace. And it involves, again, here we find the willingness to suffer for Christ. He says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. It involves the readiness, if need be, to accept social rejection, abandonment, even by loved ones. Is it worth it? Well, let's put that against our current value assessment of the kingdom of heaven. So we have on one side, dwellings of gold, infinite healthy longevity, amazing food and absolute safety. On the other side, you have this cost. You should be willing to suffer for Christ. You should be willing to accept abandonment, even by your son, even by your parents, even by your daughter, even by your spouse, by your friends. And thank God, many of us do not have to choose either the kingdom or our family. But there are people that the moment they choose the kingdom, their family rejects them. And they have to make that choice. So, the part of the cost is at least being willing and ready to make that choice the right way, which is Jesus is number one. 
So we put those two together, those two side by side. This high cost, being willing to be the object of the world's hatred, persecution, being ready to be rejected by family. On the other side, dwellings of gold, amazing food, great safety, infinite healthy longevity. To me, this is not worth it. There's a problem here. I would not be willing to let go of my relationship with my son to live eternally magnificent dwellings. It's not worth it. I would rather die. What is the problem then? The problem lies in the value assessment. Because the dwellings of gold, the, the, the amazing food, the infinite healthy longevity, the safety, this is not the whole picture. This doesn't even come close to getting to something that is so valuable that could be worth it all. This is not enough. So we need to revisit our value assessment of the kingdom of heaven. Either it's not worth it, or we are not assessing the value quite correctly yet. What are we missing? You see, what happens is that, indeed, the kingdom of heaven includes this future reality of new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, wonderful life, you know, beautiful. Everybody's going to be healthy. No more suffering. No more crying. No more pain in the new earth. And we live forever and healthy lives. It's amazing. But the kingdom of heaven includes these things. But above all, its value is due to who rules over it. You see, the kingdom of heaven is worth it all, not because of the mansions of gold, but because God is all valuable. The kingdom of heaven is worth it all, not because I will live forever, but because I will live forever in the presence of my creator who is self-sacrificially loving and who is a wonderful, all-valuable, all-sufficient God. We will only understand the value of the pearl of great price if we can at least catch a glimpse of the value of God. I appreciate the words that, the insights that Ellen White shares in the book Christ's Object Lessons on this parable. On page 115, she says, Christ himself is the pearl of great price. And then on, um, on page 118, she says that the parable of the merchantman seeking goodly pearls has a double significance. It applies not only to man as seeking the kingdom of heaven, but to Christ as seeking his lost inheritance. Jesus considered it worth it to die for you. Do you consider him to be worth it all? The one who suffered and died for me is worth living, suffering, and dying for. He is worth it. But is he worth it all to you. One thing is to say what the scriptures point out. One thing is to say what other Christians see. But what do you see? When the merchant was there and he saw this pearl, he had to see the value. It was not enough for the person selling the pearl to say, this is the greatest pearl ever. 
the merchant himself had to perceive and understand and accept that indeed for him this pearl is worth it all. It is worth going and selling because it is what he has that he's selling. He has to see the value so he can act upon it and proceed accordingly. He saw. Do you see? Do you see the value? For you, is Jesus worth facing persecution, hatred, and social rejection? When the value is clear, the decision is clear. The value was clear for the merchant. Is it clear to you? Well, let's put it a little, let's make, make it hit home a little bit more. If you had to choose between Jesus and your spouse, who would you choose? Is Jesus worth more to you than your mother? Is he worth more to you than your father? If you have children, is he worth more to you than your son, than your daughter? If he's not, something is wrong. The one who can mend a broken heart is worth going through heartbreak for him. If people put me in a position that I have to choose, it's either them or Jesus, the decision should be clear because the value should be clear. The one who willingly suffered and died for me is worth suffering and dying for, if need be. But I want to open a little parenthesis here on this issue of negotiating relationships. As I said, many, thank God, do not have to go through this decision of the either or. They can have a both and, as long as Jesus is number one, and everyone and anyone else, all the people in my life are beneath. But... This issue of the priority of Jesus, the priority of God in our lives over any and every other relationship is an important one. And I want to consider this brief parenthesis on this issue of navigating relationships. You see, the only way, the only, there's no other, the only way for a Christian to properly have anything or embrace anyone is if the embrace of Jesus is above all and all-sufficient. You see, if you compromise the salvific, restorative, ennobling, reconciliatory embrace of Christ, it will compromise every single one of your other embraces. If you want to truly love people around you, you should love Jesus first. And then you will actually love them more than you would otherwise. I appreciate the verses uh, that uh, John Piper penned in poetry. And preachers often can get a little help from poetry to convey their points. And John Piper wrote down, this is in his book, Brothers, We're Not Professionals. It's a book for ministers because ministers truly are not professionals. And I'll let you think about that. And it's quite a, an interesting insight that he has. But... Back to the point, on page 245 of that book, he says, or just part of the poem, he says, A double rule of love that shocks, a doctrine in a paradox. If you now aim your wife to bless, 
then love her more and love her less. And you could put it for other people too, for your child or your parent or your, your husband, your friends. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. In other words, you should love God first and other people second. But is the kingdom of heaven worth it all to you? Do you consider it worth it whatever the cost? Whatever the cost. You see, uh, this issue also of the gift, salvation being a gift, that same book, Christ's Object Lessons, Ellen White on page 116 says that Christ is a gift, but only to those who give themselves soul, body, and spirit to him without reserve. Completely. Is that too costly for you? Is the price too demanding? Or do you consider him to be worth it all? There is a, a writer... Helen Rosevere, she was a missionary, a medical missionary in the then Belgian Congo. And I really admire her and I have benefited greatly from um, a few of her books. And in one of her books uh, titled Living Sacrifice, Willing to be Whittled as a Narrow, on pages 124 and 125, listen to what she says. It is quite sobering. She says, today it would appear that we Christians prefer to talk of a measure of commitment, the length to which we are willing to become involved rather than the depths of God's immeasurable love in which we long to become immersed. There is abroad an atmosphere of careful calculation thus far and no further, maintaining certain reasonable limits. The carefree abandonment of love that marks the sacrifices of Paul, of 2nd century Christians, of 19th century missionaries, seems sadly lacking. Look at what she says now. Today, we weigh up what we can afford to give him. In those days, they knew that they could not afford to give him less than all. Today, we weigh up what we can afford to give him. In those days, they knew that they could not afford to give him less than all. What can you afford to give for the sake of God? There's a man, another man, also in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, who came across the pearl of great price. Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 onwards. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. This is another man who came across the pearl of great price. Let's see how he reacted that pearl. Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 onwards. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, 
what do I still lack? He was lacking something. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell all, no, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. It's very similar to the merchantman. He saw the pearl. He wanted it. But he would have to sell everything he had. In this case, this man would have to sell what he had, give to the poor. And then he receives this amazing invitation to come and follow Jesus. This is the pearl of great price. Is it worth it all to him? Verse 22, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. There's a hymn called the Seek Ye First the Kingdom. It's number 224 in the SD hymnal. The lyrics are by, are, are by uh, Norman Elliot. And the second stanza, some of the, the four lines of the second stanza say the following As for hidden treasure or for matchless pearl, when at last discovered, some will sell their all. Some but not all. Some will, but others won't. Some will sell their all when they are faced with a matchless pearl. They see the value. They're willing to face the cost because they consider it worth it all. But some won't. Not. Some will not. Some won't be willing. In fact, there's two groups among those who will not sell their all. One group is those who, although willing, correctly, willing, if need be, to sell their all to have the matchless pearl, they won't need to. Many of us won't need to let go of everything to have Christ. But others won't sell their all because they're unwilling. It's too costly. But do you know what is actually too costly? It is their decision. The decision for anything or anyone over Jesus. That is what is too costly. And that is a decision that leads to sorrow and sadness. Jesus then continues in on verse 23, Matthew 19, 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is a sobering warning. The disciples are shocked. What? The rich? It's hard for the rich? They seem so blessed. How can it be so hard for them? And then on verse 25, this is their reaction when his disciples heard it. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But I want to point out a danger here. Many Christians like to hold on to verse 26 and kind of stash verses 23 and 24 away. The sobering warning 
that Jesus says, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow, this is very tough. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. let's focus on verse 26. Because with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There is a danger in holding on to this, these words here of how for God all things are possible and try to kind of stash away, kind of not think too much about the sobering warning that we find in verses 23 and 24. The sobering warning, the danger of riches. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains what the thorns, the thorns that choke, what the thorns are. Mark 4, 18 to 19, Mark chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Look at what Jesus says, how he himself interprets his parable. And this section that I'm going to focus today only is not a sermon on the parable, parable of the sower. But here, Mark 4, verses 18 to 19. Look at what Jesus says the thorns represent. Mark 4, 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Hmm. The cares of this world. Could it be that this could be Studying for step one? Could it be that this could be trying to develop your business? Could it be that some things that in and of themselves are okay could take an oversized room in your family, in your, in your house of your heart, and they become all-consuming, and they choke the word in your life? Wow, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. On the deceitfulness of riches, I want to share this. There is a man, Mike Gore. Uh, he is very much aware and has experience with the suffering of the persecuted church around the world uh, because of his involvement, his participation of, in the organization Open Doors. He has a series of videos, short videos called Provocations, and one of them uh, is titled Persecution or Prosperity. And I have attempted to transcribe that, and I want to share, share it with you. I've seen lots of Christians survive persecution, but very few prosperity. Picture this, the devil has a barrel of a gun pressed towards your temple. And he says, renounce Christ or I'll pull the trigger. What would you do? I'm guessing nine times out of ten, in that moment, you find the courage not to deny Christ and the trigger will be pulled. But now picture this. The devil says, fine, you can have it all. He takes you to a warehouse and says, here, have all the blessings that you think come of Christianity. Big house, a great job, money, fame, food, fortune, and more than that, you can have Jesus. There he is sitting on a throne and you can go to him anytime you want. A 
God is sneaking suspicion. It won't be too long before he gets so focused in playing in the blessings of Christianity that you don't even realize that Jesus Christ has left the building. And that is the problem with materialism. It's a subtlety of distraction that suffocates our faith. Where is the pressure of persecution? It brings faith to life. Persecution is the enemy's second best tactic. His best is materialism. So let me ask you, which is of greater danger to your faith? Persecution or prosperity? Close quote. How do we react to the pearl of great price? Is it worth it all to me? Is it worth it all to you? Is Jesus worth more to you than your material possessions? Is he worth more to you than your education? Is he worth more to you than your family and friends? Is he worth more than your career? Is he worth more than the desires for other things? You know, one of the, the things that Jesus uses to interpret the thorns. Is he worth more than desires for other things? Status, fame, success, sexual pleasure, social acceptance, popularity. Is he worth it all to you? To you. At the end of the day, you have to decide if to you he is worth it all. How valuable is him to you? You see, I believe that it might be helpful to regularly reflect upon the value of our God. Regularly reflect upon the value of our Creator. Our Heavenly Father does so much for us. He has sent His own Son to die for us. Do we realize how valuable he is? It might be helpful to regularly reflect upon God's value and do a prayerful and biblically grounded assessment and reflection on whether I am living in a way that fits someone who sees God as all valuable, all sufficient. Does my life match the perception of God as all valuable? Do I live in a way, do I live as someone who perceives God as worth it all? Does my life portray God as all valuable? Or do I live in a way that maybe suggests that blank is more important to me? What do my choices suggest? What do my use of time what does my use of time suggest? You know, maybe we should even ask God, pray to Him, that He might reveal to us the ridiculous in our lives. Imagine, if you realize that your house is maybe more important to you than Christ, isn't that absolutely disgusting and ridiculous? If you realize that your studies are more important to you than God, isn't that ridiculous? In light of the amazing 
immeasurable love of God. Immeasurable value of the one who is in himself, all valuable, all sufficient. Wouldn't it be ridiculous to have anything else compete in my estimation of value? Wouldn't it be tragic? This reflection might lead us to realize that we need to repent. And if we do, we should draw closer to God, in whom alone we find, we find the solution to readjust our perspective and our expectations and our sense and perception of what really is valuable and to help us. Working in us, working in us both to will and to do. To live as those who truly consider God as all valuable. The more we properly focus on God, the better we might perceive his value. The more we reflect upon him, the more we spend time in prayer with him, the more we spend time in his word, the more we read about his love about his sacrifice for us, his care for us, the better we might perceive his value. There's a hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I find the refrain to be absolutely genius. Brilliant. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And this is the part that I like the most. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Strangely dim. Why strangely? Because to the fallen, naked human eye, the things of earth look glorious. They look amazing and valuable. Things that we should pursue with all of our might. But oh. In the light of his glory, in the light of his grace, strangely, they grow dim. Now we start to have a better perspective of value. And we see, as glorious and wonderful as these things may look like, mm, they can't even compare to his glory and his grace. And then we can see He is indeed worth it. He is worth it all. What do you say? Is He worth it to you? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.